This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the program. I'm Ellen Lee Beda. Today, how researchers are helping clinicians to identify pain in patients with dementia. We all have specific facial expressions that we have when we're in pain. That's the same for everybody and it's the same for people with dementia too. However, they are not easy to detect when you see somebody in a hospital bed or in a nursing home. And a look at why nurses are so resilient in light of the International Day of the Nurse. Almost 60% of women use complementary medicine during pregnancy. Complementary medicine includes things like yoga, herbal medicines, chiropractics and osteopathy. The jury is still out on whether complementary medicine is effective full stop, so women using it during pregnancy may be putting their unborn child in danger. Dr Jane Frawley is a researcher from the UTS Faculty of Health. She has been researching why women use complementary medicine during pregnancy. Complementary medicine is really anything that's outside of formal healthcare practices in Australia. So it's things that aren't generally taught in medical degrees and aren't practiced by conventional health practitioners like GPs. Um, and there's lots of different different types of complementary medicines that people use, lots of different types of complementary medicine practitioners that people see and really it's growing in popularity. What sort of examples of complementary medicines are out there? There's practice-based examples so like naturopathy, uh, herbal medicine, nutrition, uh, osteopathy, chiropractors, massage therapists. And then there's also products that may either be prescribed within a consultation or may be freely bought in a chemist health food shop. Uh, or supermarket. So again, things like herbal medicines, vitamins, minerals, um, that really there's a wide array of things. So your research has been looking at how pregnant women use complementary medicines. How many women are using them during pregnancy? Well, interestingly, we had a fairly broad definition of complementary medicine. So we found that 92% were using, so very, very high. And in fact, um, not many weren't. But I might just add to that that we had vitamins and minerals in that definition as well, which means folate. So, so that every every yes, woman should be taking that in pregnancy. That's right. So if we then removed our, removed vitamins and minerals from our analysis, we found that fifty eight percent of women were using complementary medicines in pregnancies uh, other than vitamins and minerals, and that 48% of women were seeing a complementary medicine practitioner during pregnancy. So that's almost half. Yeah, it is half. It's very high. And what do we know about, what, what sort of things are these women seeking help for during pregnancy? Well, I think that there's a very wide array of things. So uh, things like aches and pain, so backache, ache, leg pain, for example, sleeping, Anxiety and depression certainly came up a lot. Um, uh, symptoms of pregnancy, so the nausea and vomiting, for example. Uh, really a wide array 
so chiropractors, osteopaths, is it evidence-based when it comes to pregnancy? Do we have any evidence backing it up? No. So one of the one of the biggest problems is we, there is it's very little evidence for complementary medicine at all uh, across all age groups, but there's very, very little when it comes to pregnancy. And I guess that's the concern and that's why we felt it was important to do a study like this to just see how prevalent the, the use is during pregnancy. That's it's, that's a bit concerning, isn't it, if you're thinking about the effects it might have on the unborn child? Yes. So it, it is concerning. So many complementary medicines are, in fact, thought to be safe. Many are safe. Many aren't safe, though. So when it comes to pregnancy, of course, women are often reluctant to seek medical help for a condition that they that they feel is a consequence of pregnancy or that perhaps isn't too severe, but it still could be difficult to manage. So if they don't want to take, I guess, a pharmaceutical medication or an over-the-counter pharmaceutical, they, they may look for a complementary medicine alternative, believing that it's a safer option. It's not necessarily a safer option, though. Where, where are women getting the idea to seek complementary medicine practitioners or other supplements? We wrote a paper um, about a year ago, 18 months ago, looking at information sources for, for exactly this topic. So we, want, we wanted to know this too. So we can see that almost half women are accessing a complementary medicine practitioner, but we had no idea how or why or who was recommending them. And what we found, perhaps astonishingly, that it's friends and family. It's almost always a personal recommendation from somebody that the woman trusts. That's quite quite a common thing in pregnancy anyway, that your your decisions in pregnancy will be guided by friends, families, your mother in particular. Yes, and it's exactly what we found in terms of healthcare seeking as well. So um, women weren't asking their GPs, they weren't asking their obstetricians, their midwives, their nurse. Um, they were very, very clearly they were asking friends and family. I think it's quite a powerful antidote or a powerful recommendation if a friend or a family member has had a similar problem in their pregnancy and they sought help, say, for a, a chiropractor for a bad back or a sore back, for example, and it helped them. That that's quite that's quite a powerful antidote for somebody who is struggling with their own back pain during pregnancy. If there is no evidence for this, why do women continue to use complementary medicines? Uh, women that use complementary medicine overwhelmingly are looking for a, a safe and natural um, alternative to conventional medications in pregnancy. And there's very much the perception that complementary medicines are safe and natural and a better option. It's not necessarily the case. Um, however, that's often the motivation of women who are using it is just that it, it it's... It's safer. I guess it's more holistic, the idea that you're perhaps not just treating a, a symptom but the whole body, um, those kinds of tenets that are important to complementary medicine um, resonate often with women in pregnancy. So far from it being, you know, these women are irresponsible and just trying something else, they're actually, I guess, trying see it as better than conventional medicine because it's going to be better for the baby. That's exactly right. And they're not irresponsible in that they absolutely believe that they're doing the right thing for their health and the health of the baby. Um, the problem comes really when either that that use isn't communicated, where it isn't informed by rigorous information, um, 
when they're taking something that in fact isn't safe and importantly when they're not seeking conventional care when they need conventional care. Do these women when they're not pregnant do we know are they also more likely to use complementary medicine or is it specifically just when they're pregnant? Uh, women are high users of complementary medicine, yes. So we, uh, f- we found in our research that women that use complementary medicine prior to pregnancy were more likely to use it during pregnancy as opposed to women who hadn't used complementary medicine prior to pregnancy. So yes, they are women who, who use complementary medicine generally and have continued that use uh, during pregnancy. Sometimes, however, they, they use... M- They use it a lot more in pregnancy, though, because they're concerned about the health of the baby. Is this something nurses and midwives and GPs need to be aware of, that they should be directly asking women, are you using complementary medicine when they are visiting them? Yes, absolutely. Uh, One of the, I suppose, the biggest problems that we found and one of the really big take-home points from this research is that often this the use of complementary medicine in pregnancy, the use of complementary medicine practitioners in pregnancy isn't declared or discussed or communicated to conventional healthcare practitioners. So there's a range of reasons, but one of the biggest reasons that continues to come out in all of the literature around uh, disclosure is that they weren't asked. So I think frequently women aren't asked if they're using any complementary medicines during pregnancy and The research also tells us that there's a variety of reasons why, but I think the end point is that it's very important for maternity health care professionals to have that conversation with their patients. What about the providers that are giving this care to women? You said it's it's not necessarily it's can be a safe option, but it may not necessarily be the safest option, and there's not always evidence backing it. Do you think it's in some way up to the care providers to say, well? I shouldn't be giving care to pregnant women. So when we talk about safety, there's there's a couple of important things to think about. So there's the the obvious one, I suppose, is the safety of the actual medicine that the woman is having, the safety to her uh, or risk, if you like, to her and her unborn bub. But the second and, and just as important in many cases is that that woman may not be getting adequate treatment for a condition that needs to be adequately addressed during pregnancy. So A great example of that is urinary tract infection. So uh, women in pregnancy have a uh, commonly, uh, for some women certainly have urinary tract infections more frequently, and they may be reluctant to have an antibiotic or to, to seek conventional care because they're pregnant. And they may use a complementary medicine. And generally speaking, that would be, it might be a probiotic or a cranberry juice. So it's pretty innocuous. But the problem there in terms of safety and risk is that that urinary tract infection may not be adequately treated and it may in fact become a kidney infection or something much more severe that could actually affect the baby. So we should really be thinking about these complementary health practitioners in parallel with the GP. Yes, and and I suppose one of the really important um, messages for complementary medicine practitioners who have pregnant women in their care is that they have this open discussion with them as well and are very clear about seeking help if what they what they've prescribed doesn't work and in and in the time frames that it should work and that they should Um, seek alternative help if need be. Dr Jane Frawley, researcher from the UTS Faculty of Health. 
You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. When you are in pain, what do you do? Maybe you go and have a lie down, take a painkiller, or see your doctor if it's really bad. But what about people with dementia? How do you tell if they are in pain? Thomas Fischer is a professor of aged care nursing from Dresden in Germany. He's been studying how to identify pain in people with dementia and started off by explaining the source of pain experienced by people with dementia. Oh, really all sorts. So dementia in itself is not painful. You don't get, it doesn't hurt to to have dementia, but... Obviously, people with dementia are older persons, and when you get older, more people develop pain in their joints with movement, this kind of pain. Um, Plus, neurological diseases sometimes cause pain. Um, So what sort of neurological diseases? Yeah, like diabetes, for example, or um, a stroke may uh, leave pain behind. But I guess dementia makes it difficult to determine the extent of pain because people can't communicate. Yeah, that's it. When you get very severe dementia, you might lose the ability to to talk or to understand what somebody's uh, saying, really. So, uh, and pain is a fascinating thing because you can't measure it. It's not like uh, like you could do a lab test for pain or you could do a scan or something. It's just not possible. Pain is totally subjective. You know the pain you feel nobody else can. So I need to get my patient um, to be able to communicate. In dementia, people also get quite agitated. Is that because they're in pain or is that because of the dementia? That's the tricky thing to find out, really. Um, There's a link, obviously, because when you're in pain, you're not comfortable and that would make you agitated, maybe. Um, But really, part of research is to find out how can you differentiate in everyday life. How do you differentiate? Ah, uh, well, I don't have all the answers to that yet. We we try to find typical behaviors. So, for example, we all have specific facial expressions that we have when we're in pain. That's the same for everybody, and it's the same for people with dementia too. However, they're not easy to detect when you see somebody in a hospital bed or in a nursing home. So that's one part. Um, obviously sounds, vocalizations, things you say maybe that maybe not words but um, are typical for pain. Um, so we try to get together lists that help nurses and doctors to say, how, okay, this is typical for pain and this is maybe more typical for dementia or for delirium. But then again, um, I think asking how do we see pain is not enough We really need to see more than just the pain. We need to understand what this person is about. What is it for this person to be in his or her shoes, really? So what is he like? Is he having a good relationship with the clinical practitioner, for example? So can you you sort of understand uh, the person? Can you see what other problems the person might have? So pain is easier to determine when you have a relationship with that individual? Oh, absolutely. I would say so, yeah. It's much harder if you don't know the person. And the more you know about them, the more you know, for example, how somebody during his life has treated pain themselves, what their typical reactions were, the easier it gets for you to stand by this person when he or she deteriorates, really. 
So a nurse in a nursing home that sees uh, these patients every day would have a better understanding than, say, a nurse in an emergency department. It would be much harder for uh, for nurses or doctors in emergency departments. Yes, they need much more help. And it would be good if, for example, relatives could come with their relative really to emergency or to hospital treatment to help the doctors and nurses there. And to support actually the the person in dementia because they get quite frightened when they come into environments like emergency rooms. So your research has been looking at the facial expressions and um, the, the things that people with dementia are saying when they're in pain. Yeah, and how they behave as well, like body posture is another thing. So obviously if, you, uh, if your stomach hurts, you will sort of curl together or you will make sure nobody touches you on your stomach. So that's part of the thing. So we're trying or we try to get together uh, really a, a sheet of paper, an instrument that uh, nurses and doctors can tick to see um, if they think there is pain or not. How effective have these tools been? Uh, not good enough. Um, there's quite a number of them around from Australia, from other places or, uh, in the world, um, and we're not satisfied with them. They're just beginning to help nurses and doctors. So we want to take this a bit further um, and getting it more into a process, really an algorithm to help uh, pain detection. Is that is that possible to get it into an algorithm? Yeah, we think so. Um, it's like... There is one around which I think is quite good. So you would start with looking at the diseases, the illnesses a person has. Then you look at possible other causes for discomfort. So make sure uh, a person with dementia who cannot tell you I'm cold or I need to go to the toilet, that all this is being cared for. And maybe then in the end, if you're unsure and you've gone through the process, give them an analgesic just as a trial and look what what happens. Does it get better? And sorry, what's an analgesic? Uh, an analgesic, a pain, uh, a pain killer, basically. And is that how you typically treat pain yeah. with people with dementia? Yeah, just like with everybody else. It's the same medication they would get like everybody else. People with dementia, some have more severe forms than others. Yes. Of those who have less severe forms, can you talk to them a bit about their pain? Absolutely. I mean, dementia is a a progressive disease. So you start very slowly. And it's very important to take seriously uh, what a person with dementia says, even if you think, oh, he or she is a bit funny, maybe. It doesn't matter. Uh, She's a person uh, you have to respect. So we need to teach uh, clinicians to be patient, to listen carefully, and to take small cues and we need to find ways of helping people with dementia somebody with a lesser form of dementia for example it is much easier for them if you have um, a sheet of paper where different descriptions of pain are on like i have no pain or it hurts a little big sheet of paper in front of them and they will point to uh, what they feel is most appropriate so sort of a scale it's a scale it's basically a pain scale just one that is more accessible than the usual scales we use so it's making really healthcare accessible for people with dementia I'm interested in. Thomas Fischer, Professor of Aged Care Nursing from Dresden in Germany. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app.
When it comes to international healthcare, nurses are on the front line. As part of teams that respond to crises, they have played a significant role in the health gains the world has made through the 20th and 21st century. But as the world becomes smaller and movement between countries increases, nurses on the front line are facing new threats. On May 12th, Florence Nightingale's birthday, the world will celebrate International Day of the Nurse. This year, the theme is a force of change, improving health systems resilience. To find out exactly what this means, Nina Kobel spoke with Carla Saunders, lecturer in the Centre for Health Services Management at UTS. The issues that we're currently facing, the most common threats to health system resilience, are, in a nutshell, it's too few reserves. We're having increasing demand through a growing and ageing population, more emerging diseases, technologies that are high cost but are allowing us to diagnose better. So we need an intervention then once a diagnosis is made. So too few reserves for when that increasing unexpected demand happens. When you talk about those reserves that are lacking, a nurse is one of the things that we're running short of internationally? Not really, unless it's intentional. So what we're seeing with a greater demand for healthcare is some approaches to create some efficiencies and whether that is not employing enough nurses, not having enough workforce to support that demand it is a risk that is probably happening in some countries. Nurses are quite resilient in themselves. They're part of our resilient health system in its own right. And that's the reason you think they've chosen this theme is because nurses are so important in that resilience? Yes, absolutely. So they're the largest number of within our health workforce as health professionals Often they have personal characteristics. It helps them to be resilient. So the first need for a resilient health system is to make sure that nurses and other health workforce are themselves resilient. The natural ability to adapt to a new circumstance is often a personal trait, but that doesn't mean personal resilience can't also be learned. How do you do that? How do you teach a nurse to be resilient? There are approaches like practicing to respond to negative experiences in ways that don't exacerbate the situation. Nurses are very good at calming a crisis situation. They tend to self-reflect and identify their own risk and protective factors in a complex work environment. They're often optimistic, especially with patients. So that factor in itself helps them to be resilient They seek out supportive relationships during a crisis situation. They rally the troops. They rally a team together to support patients or to support a crisis situation. They also, the important thing about nurses is they make assessments about the challenges ahead. They look further. They look around them. They're aware. They have a situation awareness that really places them well to be and contribute to a resilient health system they tend to be the bigger picture thinker whereas other health professionals tend to be very patient focused which is also an important uh, characteristic of nurses but they they have the ability to look broader to understand what's coming 
And that's the quality that makes them desirable in crises. But do those crises often put nurses at risk? And is that is that something we need to consider when we talk about a resilient situation? Yes, they are the go-to people, both for patients, for other staff. They're seen as those that know and that understand what's happening around them. So they need support to support others in building others' capacity to also act in a resilient manner so that the the health system is sustained and the work is sustained. They need help to support a changing and ever-changing environment normally, and we help them do that. But when a crisis situation happens, they're often the the quick thinkers. The, they have the understanding of what resources and capacities are available to them to rally. Um, they need to help others to understand that and be prepared as well. You also mentioned something earlier about nations who have a better control on their own health system helping other countries. So how does that play into the system of resilience? We are a global health system in one way or another. Virus crosses boundaries, crosses nations, emerging threats of disease cross nations often. We need to now plan broadly to have a national and international health system that is resilient so that we don't get pockets of absolute despair, health systems that disintegrate with challenges and an unsupportive environment around that nation is is not helpful in any way. In fact, it's it threatens the resilience of the health systems around those that don't have a resilient system, and often the demands are then placed on those other systems anyway. And we did see that with the outbreak of Ebola and just how catastrophic that was and how quickly it moved and suddenly the world was asking those questions about how we need to address health from a global perspective. So how did we deal with that from a perspective of resilience for nurses? Was it manageable at all? No, we we didn't do well in West Africa in terms of resilience, but, but we didn't do well internationally. We didn't support those that weren't in West Africa We didn't support those nations very well that were willing to support and help them with additional resources to go in because their own systems weren't that resilient to cope with that increasing demand and pressure. It's a combination of issues when you think of West Africa and Ebola, the local customs and beliefs. So helping that community generally to understand a complex situation like the Ebola virus, the mobility, the sheer mobility of the population in that region and helping communities understand that we needed to contain that virus wasn't happening very well. After years of violence and turmoil in that country, there was a lack of public trust and it's getting that public on board that is so important. That's where it fell down more than anything else. When we train young Australian nurses, is this the type of conversation that is happening about how to tackle these global problems and crossing those international borders? Rather than train them to actually do that, where many will be nurses in this country alone, what we have 
introduced is an understanding of advocacy and the important role of nurses in advocating for health systems that are sustainable but also fair. So nurses understand the importance of a universal health system, the funding arrangements that allow the most vulnerable people to access health systems is so important. So nurses themselves are a a good cohort to advocate on behalf of other nations, to work internationally when they can, but there's a presence in our country of nurses who have a good understanding of the international environment, can foresee challenges and advocate for a much fairer, resilient international health system. Carla Saunders speaking there with Nina Copel. Carla is a lecturer in the Centre for Health Services Management at UTS. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You can also tweet us at 2ser. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Leabeater. See you next week for more.